Welcome to the third season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and in this season, I'll be sharing conversations with educators and leaders who are making schools and classrooms more phenomenal than ever before by implementing community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment practices that promote agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. I am honored to share these conversations of innovation and passion with all of you. Thank you so much for listening in. It is such a pleasure to welcome Samantha Bennett back to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Sam is the author of that workshop book and a contributing author to Comprehension Going Forward and The Right to Literacy. She recently edited Chris Devani's newest book, Why Do I Have to Read This?, which is phenomenal. She is also the co-author and collaborator with Chris Devani and Debbie Miller of two on-demand courses through Heinemann. Sam serves educators as an instructional coach and education consultant. She is an expert in curriculum design and day-to-day instruction. Sam works with districts and schools around the country to nurture professional capital. She has worked for the PBC and continues to be a dear colleague and supporter of our work. Sam, welcome to the third season of the PEBC podcast. How are you? I'm terrific. Congratulations to you and thank you for all the amazing uh, information and energy and joy you're putting into the world through this podcast. It's just, it is phenomenal. And I have loved listening along. Well, thank you. And you were one of our very first guests in season one. And now that we're into season three, we have a new theme for this year. And it's more phenomenal than ever before. And with all the guests that I'm, you know, having these great conversations with, I feel like I am the lucky one because I get to talk to so many great people, great educators about what are we doing to make schools better places than they've ever been before? In what ways can we teach and lead for equity, agency, and understanding? So we still have that question at our core, but for, you know, this year, this 21, 22 school year, we're really thinking about how can it be better than it ever was? And so I just had to reach out to you because I know you have been doing a ton of interesting work. Um, I know that during COVID, you went back to graduate school and you're pursuing your EDD, which doesn't surprise me because you are the smartest cookie in the cookie jar. And ever since I've known you for like 19 or 20 years, you always have your pulse, like your finger on the pulse of the research. You always know what's going on in schools. You always know what's going on in the research and you always push that envelope. So I can't wait to talk to you today. And I want to hear about like, how is it that you found yourself back in school and what are you getting smarter about? Well, I feel, uh, I mean, COVID, you know, blew us all away for so many reasons. And I was traveling every single week and then March, uh, 2020 hit and all of a sudden, Every everything was everything was finished. I went online, started looking for jobs, and every job that I was even interested in, uh, I needed my uh, PhD or EDD. So that was such an interesting thing before because that had never been a barrier to uh, any of my work. And uh, DU is right out my back door, and so I did a little inquiry and was like. Okay, thinking that I would be able to walk out my back door and go to school, not realizing it would all be online anywhere. So I could have gone to Columbia 
which I, you know, who knows? Anyway, uh, so it was so fascinating. And uh, we also had seven humans in the house for all of COVID. And um, three of those other humans in school, uh, grad school and undergrad, and them reading and writing all day, every day, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I should, I should do that again. Yeah. And to be the best of use to teachers that I was working with and principals and coaches I'm working with, I was like, all right, I have to experience what, what is, what is it like to be a learner in this time and how can I best serve? And so, um, I, I think just digging into the work myself and helped me also figure out how I can best serve in this unprecedented time in education. Absolutely. And so I think that it's interesting to think about that time of, you know, so many, you know, learners in your home and you taking on that stance. You're always taking on the stance of learner, but you were really a part of formalized education. And I know you're still pursuing your EDD. And so, you know, having that, that structured space, if you will, to read and write and discover and engage in inquiry for yourself. What are you learning about? What are you thinking about? Well, it it really I I do feel so fortunate because of time, which is kind of my whole reason for being is time and how we use time and how we use time in schools mm-hmm. for teachers and for kids. And so experiencing that um when we had these big full days where there weren't uh places to be, <laughs> Right. (laughs) And really figuring out and people going into like deep depression and anxiety and all of these things. Really, I started studying and thinking hard about what is this like agency and ownership of learning? And what does this look like when we don't have a place to gather in Mm. schools, when we're not gathering in schools anymore and we're gathering online with these Brady Bunch squares what are the things that remain and what are the thing what are the things that are missing and one of the things that i know i missed the most was this idea of how am i who am i as a human and how can i be more fully human on this screen and connecting with other humans and it turns out that is an entire field of study who would how have known that how to how to humanize schools, how to humanize leadership, how to um, what are the dehumanizing practices that are baked in to systems, particularly school systems, that we don't necessarily take time to analyze and surface and 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 dismantle. So that like, I just like have to pause because I'm thinking, okay, what does that even mean? Like that, that word humanizing, like, I think we all have connotations. Like everyone listening is like, okay, so is she thinking this? Or is she thinking that? Or what is that field all about? So can we just dive into like, what does that mean? Like in the research that you've been reading and all of your study, like what is humanizing schools or humanizing leadership all about? Like at its core, how would you kind of define it or explain it? So I think the best way, and I am a I am a novice. In, I mean, even fifty two years on the planet, this is this is all brand new. But I can tell you 
where I'm trying to pull the threads through the 52 years of experience I do have. So I think the best way to define humanism and humanizing schools is to talk about what it's not. Mm. So when, when do people feel dehumanized? Okay. Leaders, teachers, and kids. So I think starting with when people feel dehumanized is the way to then flip it and analyze what, what are the things we want to do to make schools more human and more humane and, and ensure that everybody can bring their full selves to schools when we regather. Particularly this year, we have this amazing opportunity to push the restart button and to not fall into bad negative negative patterns. So how can we bring our full humanity and everything we've learned and experienced in this past year, good and bad and tragic and life-giving? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? So, so I would like to put that question to you. So can you think of a time in your time in school, either as a student, as a teacher, as a consultant, are, are there practices for you that rear their head when I say, when have you ever felt dehumanized or ever witnessed any dehumanization? Oh, of course. And when you, know, you asked me that question, and like two things popped into mind. One was kind of the, the treadmill, if you will, of just grind and time, like working such incredible hours and never kind of stepping off that treadmill. I think that felt dehumanizing to me and still continues to. I can put myself in that space. I think another thing for me personally is isolation. Mm. Um, I can, you know, thinking about different teaching experiences in which sometimes I had really rich opportunities for collaboration and colleagues and others in which I felt very, very alone. And I think that isolation took away from that humanity of the space. So I'm curious for you, like when you think about like the research and the reading you've done, what themes are emerging? Like, what do you think are like some of those systemic practices that are dehumanizing schools? Because I'm curious, like those are the two things that popped into my mind, but what are you finding in the research? Yeah. So I, I think you've, you've really nailed it and hit on a few things. So I think teacher as martyr and leader as martyr. Mm -hmm. And this idea of putting in 15, 16, 17, 18 hour days is, is a part of it. And, um, where, where we don't have full humanity linked to time, is part of it. I think isolation is part of it. And that idea of when do we feel connected to other humans, both connected to kids, connected to colleagues, connected to uh, administration, connected to the whole, connected to the whole reason that schools exist. That idea of why, and Mm. why do we have public education, and why do we gather in these buildings. Because if learning is just one kid, one computer, why, why do we have schools? Why do we have buildings where we gather? Mm-hmm. So, so really focusing on the why we gather and prioritizing those things. I think fear mm. is the other thing that dehumanizes. And that idea of... Operating from fear, 
that I have to defend my practice as a teacher, that kids are fearful. Am I good enough? Do I know enough? Do I, right? And thinking from the student lens, this idea of hierarchy and how we rank, right? Through grades, through fast processors, slow processors, through tracking, through um, all of those dehumanizing, how we use curriculum and don't have a full variety of perspectives and reasons to learn. And we have these really kind of preachy topics, like I was planning with a group of fourth grade teachers a couple weeks ago. And so we, you know, are talking about the big ideas of the unit and guiding questions. And so they, one of the guiding questions they came up with was, what makes a good friend? And I was just like, Like, really, really, what makes a good friend? Like, okay, they can do that in the on the first day of the first class. So, so what? Life is complex. Humans are complex. If you think fourth graders on the playground are not brutalizing and dehumanizing each other as they figure out who am I friends with? Who likes me? Who am I? Why? How? Who should I be friends with? What about the kid that's sitting by themselves on the bench? What about, right, the new yeah. uh, immigrant that's just arrived here from Afghanistan, right? As we think about refugees coming in this year, right, right now. Like, what? how about we flip it to why is it so hard to be a good friend all Ooh. the time? That's a great question. So the idea of the complexity of humanity and the reason we gather in schools, can we bring our full complexity as humans and all the emotions that come with that and give each other time and space and grace to be our full humans and full humanity. So I think, I mean, laughing so hard, thinking about this, what is, why is it so hard to be a good friend? I think about PLC structures. And when we just throw three teachers together because they happen to teach the same grade level, but they don't like each other, they don't work well together, they don't share beliefs about education, and we're forcing them to plan together. Mm-hmm. That's dehumanizing without talking about, okay, how do groups work together? How do we need each other? How do we get to the core about what we believe about the purpose of education and how students should spend their time? When do we make time for those conversations so that we can truly serve kids when our head, hearts, and guts are aligned? That's what I find in my work in schools. When when people's head, hearts, and guts are aligned, I'm almost kind of like a chiropractor going into mm-hmm. schools and helping people like adjust and and kind of crack, right? Crack their right. backs a little bit to make sure they're not doing something because, well, somebody told me I had to use this curriculum or I had to do this lesson this way. So I'm just resigned to doing it. Like kids know, kids know when you're faking it. Kids know when you are not, do not fully believe in in what you're doing or the topic you're covering, right? Or not covering, uncovering, hopefully with kids and the way you're using time for them to wrestle, right? This idea of kids, of schools being of, for, and by students. What does that look like? And the ways leaders can 
create the conditions for teachers to wrestle with big ideas and figure out like, why are we teaching this topic? How is this creating better humans, both today and in the future? So this, you know, 10 year rule. So when I think about planning topics with teachers, this idea of it should have 10 year rule in 10 years, it's still going to be an important topic. And Will it make help kids grow their humanity, make them better humans? And am I becoming a better human digging in alongside of kids? So where do we make time and space in schools for that to happen? And that's what I want to talk a little bit about, like, what are some action steps or what are some things we can do as leaders, either formal leaders or informal but I really just for a second, let's just pause and kind of kind of collect our thinking and kind of paraphrase some of the ideas that you just shared with us. One thing I heard was our use of time in buildings, that the way in which we not only structure time, but the way the expectations on how folks are going to use time can be very dehumanizing because it wears us down. You talked a lot about focus and not just a focus, but meaningful focus that teachers and kids need to be engaged in meaningful work. And when it's not meaningful, that's dehumanizing, when it doesn't matter. I also heard, and I don't know if you said it explicitly, but I'm kind of inferring that a lack of trust is dehumanizing. So if we don't trust teachers to be professionals, if we don't trust students to, that they're doing their very best, that that's dehumanizing. And then a piece of that kind of in that trust bucket when it kind of my synthesis right now, you mentioned student achievement and test scores and the, or the ways in which we rank kids and teachers. And so that as a structure, also a systemic structure is dehumanizing. Anything else you'd add to that bucket? I mean, those are, (laughs) those are pretty hard. Those are all the things. Those are all, I mean, that's, I think that's the thing that's so interesting about this work is it almost seems silly to think about humanization in schools and it's not silly. It's at the heart of everything. Mm -hmm. So, so what can we do? Like, what are some changes? What, like, how can we dismantle these hierarchies or these structures? I mean, I'm thinking a little bit of about hegemony and implicit bias as well, but Like, how do we, how can we make changes to humanize schools? So the the biggest thing is to be real and to not candy coat things. So this idea of authenticity and this idea of breaking the fake. Mm, Say more about that. Is crucial. So a, a, Fake structure. So, I mean, if we, even if we just go back to uh, how teachers work together, okay, right? Mm-hmm. A, f- a, f- a fake structure is uh, is is building groups of teachers to work together and not slowing down to take the time to analyze, like, what does it look like, sound like, feel like to work together and how do we need each other and how do we have a complex enough task that we need three brains, four brains, six brains wrapped around something. So, Mm. and that idea of respect and trust of the grownups that are in a room. So school school schedules and school structures and how teams work together from a leadership perspective 
are crucial. So get live, giving the grown-ups time and space to get to know each other. What do you believe about the purpose of education? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And what do you believe about the structures of school and what kids need? That is a concrete practice that I think we can do in schools. That idea that every single teacher has a context letter outside their door that shares, here's who I am. Here's how race, class, and gender impacts how I show up in the world, right? If we really want to yeah. meet the times. And this idea of here is what I hope you know, your children experience on a daily basis and over time when they get to spend their days with me, or if we're thinking about secondary, when they spend five hours with me a week, here's what I hope they walk away with, having such a clear vision. So grownups knowing why they're doing what they're doing and grownups knowing how the person next to them in the classroom next to them, how the administrator knows each, how you know each other deeply, how we connect and belong, how we create the sense of belonging in schools and the sense of connection and these red threads of, of practice that we each add a thread to this beautiful tapestry and that each school's tapestry looks a little different. And how do we honor that and honor that uh, beauty of humanity and, and those threads um, and slowing down to take the time to know each other deeply because that's the only way we can center kids and know how do we also know kids and families deeply and what are their hopes and dreams for the kind of humans that they want to be and show up in the world. So I'm making so many connections to um, some of my conversations with Dr. Andre Brill and thinking about, and Scott Murphy, an amazing yeah. leadership coach. Yeah. This, this concept of and or both and. Like we can have both and we need to. We can have rich relationships that are collegial and centered in meaning. And at the same time, we can dig in and embrace really complex and challenging tasks that have great meaning. We and have to. That, that's the only like, thing that's worthy of our time, right? Yeah. So I think about that, it gets back to, you know, one of the things we mentioned or that you mentioned that was um, dehumanizing in schools was our use of time. But yeah. we can flip that and restructure the way we use time to increase the humanity in the school setting. That's one suggestion. What else? So the way we structure and use time, the way we structure and connect as humans, mm -hmm. right, to break down that isolation. And I think that's that centering of purpose and that centering of why schools exist and why we gather. And this breaking the fake that a test score, a high test score means you can operate in skillful ways in the world and create this life full of meaning and, and connection and service. So that's the biggest fake of all. Mm -hmm. Because how you can perform on a test is one small sliver of the skills and knowledge of a human. Mm -hmm. So we need to put that in its proper perspective. And I'm not saying it doesn't, I'm not saying it has to go away, but it has to just get into the right, into the right section. It is one thread. 
right? Of, of all these other things and the ways we know uh, what, what creates this picture of this full human and this constant striving for growth and that we're never done. And the same thing is true for the grownups in the building. We're never done. Mm-hmm. If, if we're if we're finished, why do we get out of bed in the morning? So that idea of perpetual growth for every single human in the building, kids and grownups alike. And how do we get everybody jumping out of bed? And we can't wait to get to school because it's the place that fills us up the most. It's the place where we connect the most. It's the it's the place where our voices are honored the most and shared and people are curious about us and about what we have to offer. And I can tell that what I have to offer is being valued versus having to leave parts of myself at home because they're too messy or too hard or too big or too small for someone. So so if we can get kids and grown-ups jumping out of bed and they can't wait to get to school because this is the place mm-hmm. that is of for and by me. So that is linked to time, that is linked to connection, that is linked to breaking the fake, that is linked to having a really really clear purpose and that our days connect. Mm-hmm. because we're going towards these big things. So that goes towards uh, the leaders in the school planning for teacher growth yeah. on a daily basis. That goes to teachers planning for student growth and having a really clear picture of, yeah, why are we studying rocks? Why, why do rocks matter? And if a teacher can't answer that, why are, why are we studying rocks? What, what is it about these topics that we're trying to uncover and for grownups to wrestle with that as well versus being handed a scripted curriculum and, and trying to implement a scripted curriculum, right, as this hugely dehumanizing thing. And kids know. Yeah. Kids know. Kids know. And teachers know. I mean, you know. <laughs> you know me. We go back for years and years. and one of my things is adult learning and just the ways in which how can we structure learning opportunities for the adults that are rich and engaging and differentiated and rooted in inquiry. And so as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking a lot about this idea of parallel pedagogy, right? Like we want our classrooms to be places where every single kid belongs, where every single kid isn't just a number or just a test score and that our curriculum and the ways in which we engage in learning are interesting and complex and multidimensional and have great meaning for kids. I mean, at PEBC, we call it life worthiness. Like we want, we want that curriculum to be life worthy. And from what I'm hearing and kind of paraphrasing from you is that that's what we need for the adults in the room. Yeah. So in a really concrete, yeah. And trying to get concrete. I know we're kind of airy fairy theory today, but this idea that a a professional development plan and a coaching plan should be as rich as a unit plan for kids. So that idea of big ideas, guiding questions, right? Use of time. What are, what are the inputs? What, what are we reading? What are we studying? What are we looking at? That's going to help us. Um, you know, and that goes back to professional capital. You kind of opened the the podcast with my uh, dedication (laughs) to professional capital, which is so, so, uh, rich because it's the growing of human capital, right? Our knowledge Mm -hmm. and skills, the growing of 
decisional capital, how we use those knowledge and skills every single day, all the decisions we're making on a minute by minute basis, like the number, I I don't want to quote the wrong number, but it's some (laughs) phenomenal number of decisions teachers make on a minute by minute basis. Like, I don't know, it's something like 600. I mean, I don't know. It's crazy. I I have seen I don't want to fake the number. I don't want to. I think it's like 20 trillion. It is 20 trillion. I think that's what it is. And then the third one is social capital. Mm. how are we building that with others? So social capital, decisional capital, and human capital make up professional capital. And this is Fullen and Hargraves. And mm-hmm. it's, it is just at, 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 the, at the heart of the work. And showing up more human, you know, the two, the two people I think right now, the biggest, well, there's so many, but uh, thinking about the art of gathering, Priya Parker, and then thinking about Dare to Lead, Brene Brown, and her work on vulnerability, values-linked action, resilience, and relational trust, right? If, if we could just operationalize that in schools, we, mm-hmm. we could really f- figure out some of these really complex dilemmas um when you're going back to like brick and schneider right like just that idea like all the trust research from 10 15 years ago it still holds true so i guess my question for you sam is that it's obvious like you're so passionate you have been reading a ton you have some scholars in mind that are kind of like you know lighthouses for you in this study here's my question why why, why does this matter? Why, why humanizing schools? Like, and I, I don't mean that like in a flip way, but really, no, like, I know. Like, I, what's I, the call? I, I mean, obviously we want to be like, yeah, we want schools to be places where people want to go to work and where people want to go to learn. But like, what is your call to action? Like, what's I, I, the want, why? I want schools to be the most joyous, life-giving places in our society. And I don't think we are currently living up to that promise or premise. Mm. Joyful, life-giving. I mean, school saved my life. Mm-hmm. School saved my life from growing up. And I think that there are so many kids where we are not, we're just not living up to that. And we're and and for a variety of reasons. And this is not a blame game. This is no. all of us, all of us showing up and remembering why we're there and saying, okay, how can learning and, and feeling more skilled and feeling more connected, that's, that's it. That's the purpose of life to me. And I believe schools can be those most life-giving places. Mm-hmm. For each and every kid and each and every adult in those buildings, and if we can return that joy and that giving of life to the schoolhouse this year, I think we have an opportunity to change culture, yeah. to change the future. And I'm so appreciative of you and your passion and your dedication and the ways in which you influence all of our thinking. And I really am so grateful for our time today. And just as we close, is there, is there anything else you'd like to share? I'm just grateful for you. And I am so grateful for the teachers and leaders that I get to work with that put these practices 
in, into place every day because this is not me. This is me in schools watching other people try to do this and and working side by side with them hip to hip, head to head, heart to heart, and trying to figure this out so that, so that schools can be the places we all want and desperately need them to be for our world. Sam, thank you for telling everyone's story or so many stories. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.